You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Revision Daily Briefing live without a net on a very interesting day on Wall Street. Lots of news, lots of market action, inflation, bond vigilantes, and lo and behold, we're getting the old band back together. I couldn't be happier about being joined by Ed Harrison. Ed, welcome. Thank you very much, Ash. It's always a pleasure. You know, we're here on a rather interesting day. Let me just go through some of these numbers here uh, just to bring people up to speed if you haven't been in front of a terminal today. Dow Jones Industrial Average closes at 33,587. That's off, down 1.99%, basically off 2% on the day. S&P 500 down 2.14%. Final closing uh, number 4,063. And NASDAQ closing at 13,031 off for the day, 2.67%, and the VIX up uh, 26% uh, on the day, settling final number on the VIX, 27 spot 59. Ed, I know you've been watching this. Uh, I know you've been thinking about what happened with the inflation numbers. How are you looking at these markets? What are you thinking right now? Yeah, I mean, that VIX, that's something. You know, Ash, by the way, let me just uh, uh, tell you, I missed doing the RVDB with you, and you stole my line about getting the band back together again. Uh, I'm sure that, you know, some people, um, they also miss uh, the pairing. We never do RVDB together, and uh, I'd love it if people in the comments were to say, do you want us to do this more often? It all depends on whether or not, you know, you and I do a good job together, so we'll see. No pressure, Ed. None whatsoever. Uh, but yeah, absolutely. You know, I would love to do these more often. It's a lot of fun. It takes us back to you know when we started Real Vision Daily Briefing at the depths of the pandemic, the worst uh, possible moment. You know, you and I and some folks at Real Vision thought we really need to get out there, reach out and touch the subscribers, talk about what's happening, go through the numbers, go through the data, provide context and explain what's going on. And it's just such a pleasure to be back doing it with you. Well said. And, you know, that was exactly where I was going to go, Ash, is that I look at RVDB as sort of a complement to the interview series. You know, the interview series is the the macro. And like what we're going to talk about in a second is the stuff that's happening right now, giving you a context in the mac of the macro for what just happened in terms of the action for today. And, you know, for me, actually, I, I guess over the last uh, year, periodically we ask people questions. One of the questions I would ask uh, some of the viewers today, Ash, is you know, how important is RVDB to their membership? I'm not talking about people who are looking at it for free on YouTube, but I'm thinking about our subscribers, our core base. Uh, you know, Is RVDB exactly how I'm thinking about it as a complement to, uh, to the interview series? Yeah, absolutely. How does it fit in with the way you watch RVDB? with the way you consume it, with how you think about it. Anything uh, that you'd like to tell us about that, any context at all would be great. And as you know, uh, we very much 
are interested in what you have to say and we respond to them. And that's really what I think one of the things that makes this uh, show different, unlike the big networks. We're basically here to provide information to our subscribers and to the viewers who are watching on YouTube. We'd love to hear what you think. Yeah, and Ash, so you were asking what I think. Uh, Dow Jones down 681 points. That is the low for the day, pretty much. NASDAQ low for the day. So the indices closed at their lows, all three of them uh, of the day. So you had selling pressure into the close. What that says to me is, is that this is a fundamental move that has some legs and some momentum behind it. Uh, I would say that the toggle, I, you know, I wrote this actually on Twitter earlier this morning. Um, I said that the toggle is still interest rates. Ultimately, the, the reason that we were able to have a reprieve in the markets uh, for tech is because, uh, you know, the bond vigilantes, uh, they were tamed. We went to 177 on the 10-year U.S. Treasury, and we backed off. We backed off into the 150s. Now, we're back to 169. So 169 makes a big difference compared to, say, 151. To me, that is the crux of where we are right now uh, in, in the markets. Yeah, we're just a hair's breadth uh, under one spot seven on the UST 10 yield. Uh, and I should add, to pick up on the points that you made, the selling pressure into the close on the day, looking at these uh, major indices for the week, the Dow Jones Industrial Average minus 3.4% on the week. S&P 500 minus 4.1% on the week. NASDAQ Composite minus 5.2% on the week. 5.2%. Yeah, that's a, a, what people used to call mini correction. 5% mini correction, 10% official correction, 20% bear market. So 5% down. We haven't had that in, in months. So you could call that healthy. But I would say that what you should take away from that is it, it's the DCF stupid. That's, that's a, that is a phrase that needs to make a comeback because ultimately what that phrase is telling you is valuation still matters. Discounted cash flows, no matter how you do any valuation, whether you have network effects or not, what's happening is, is people are saying, this is what we think the future is. And as a result of this future, we're looking at your cash flows and we're discounting them to present value. And when interest rates go up, those future cash flows become less valuable and they become much less valuable for those companies that are the most growth. The growthiest companies are the ones that get hit when uh, the discount rates go up. And so that's what we're seeing now. That's why when you see a big rise in interest rates, we see a uh, you know NASDAQ going up, going down the most. We see the S and P later, and then the Dow, which is you know more of the stalwarts, where more of the cash flow is in the near term. They're the ones that go down the the least. Yeah, absolutely. And let's talk to what's at the core of all that. What's at the core of your analysis today in credit write downs, which I would encourage anyone uh, who is serious about thinking about the credit cycle, what's happening in fixed income, uh, to subscribe to. You say uh, for now, though, it's inflation that has everyone mesmerized. Let's give the context for the news today. Obviously, uh, a blowout number, the largest uh, jump uh, since, I believe, 2008, September of 2008, the beginning of the quantitative easing universe. Yes. And, you know, our uh, uh, mutual colleague, Jack Farley, he had a good tweet. I'm looking at now 324 retweets already. He says that the inflation numbers were blowing past expectations, leaving every single uh, economist estimate in the dust. 
uh, 4.2% year-over-year change. Uh, that's versus the estimate, which was a 3.6% median change. And yeah. the highest estimate of the 47 people that he found, economists on Bloomberg, was 3.9%. And this compares to a 2.6% number in uh, March. So let's forget about you know the fact that uh, we had a, a deflation and a lockdown a year ago. Really, what you have to focus on is, one, the level, and two, uh, expectations. So 4.2 right. is a huge number. Uh, and expectations were much lower than that 4.2%. Right. Yeah. And Jack Farley, uh, God bless him, he tweeted out the frequency histogram. Now, that is a serious analysis. But talk a little bit about what your thoughts are on that number, what it means in contrast. Look, look, this is the most, uh, in any 12-month period since 2008, this is a substantial move in prices. Uh, what does that mean? Uh, who, and if for people who are relatively new to thinking about uh, bond markets, talk a little bit about the bond vigil antis and whether or not they may be back in play. Yeah, I think that they are back in play. You know, they had a go at the Fed uh, and they made it up to 177, as I was saying, but then they were stalled out. And the way that I'm, I think of the bond vigilantes, and I think it's a good way to think of it, is that they're front runners. What they're doing is they're saying that here is what, here's the policy uh, of the Fed's reaction function. Here are the data. Uh, and here's what we think is going to happen in the future based upon that. And what the Fed's been telling us is, is that, by the way, uh, inflation doesn't matter to us. And in fact, it's employment that matters the most. We are not going anywhere with interest rates in the future. What the bond vigilantes have been saying is, is we don't believe you. We think that uh, the data are so good, the inflation numbers are going to be so high that we um, anticipate you will your reaction function will be more aggressive, more tightened than you than you're telling us. And so we are going to front run your policy decisions. They had a go. Uh, but then Jay Powell came out and a whole litany of different Fed officials came out and said, hang on, guys, we're, we don't care what you think. We're not going to do it. We're not raising interest rates. We're not tightening. We're not uh, tapering asset purchases. But this number was so bad that the bond vigilantes are now at the margin thinking the Fed, you know, they're going to have to do something. And so that's why interest rates went up. If I may, Ed, quote, Ed Harrison, so this is from today's credit write downs. because This is spot on and precisely to the point in a little bit more detail than you've just mentioned, quote, so it makes sense that at the margin, investors have started to question the Fed's resolve on holding firm on monetary accommodation, given just how much inflation has jumped. This means long-term rates, because a large swath of bond investors now believe the Fed will move up its timetable for tightening. So large is the inflation wave. And then you go on to say, this is how the bond vigilantes work. Their role is to test the resolve of the Fed, test the Fed's adherence to its own policy guidelines. Is the Fed so wedded to the concept of flu full employment that it's willing to completely disregard its inflation mandate? How much does inflation have to rise before the Fed changes its tunes about inflation being, and this is a key word, transitory. And if mm -hmm. the Fed changes tack, what will they do? Those are the questions being asked by the bond vigilantes. 
Yes, indeed. That word transitory, that, that is the key word, right? Because the Fed has basically told us that they're going to look through the numbers, uh, you know, so they get a free pass for the next two or three months. But this number was so bad that suddenly people are like, wait a minute, maybe the Fed isn't going to look through these numbers. If we see prints like this, which are even ahead of our expectations, 2.6% moving up to 3.6%, instead getting 4.2, what happens if we get a 5% number the next time? Right. Then the Fed has to do something. That's basically what the bond vigilantes are telling us. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. That seems to be the whole fulcrum around which these markets are going to pivot. This notion of transitory. Look, there's an argument to be made, and I'm not saying I agree with it, but there's an argument to be made that's not crazy that says something like, well, what do you expect uh, for a 12-month uh, year-over-year transition? Look where we were uh, in May uh, of 2020. It was the depths uh, of the impact that we were seeing from the COVID crisis. There is nowhere for things to go, for growth to go, and therefore potentially prices to go, but up. And so this question that you're hitting on is just so central to everything we're talking about, which is, is it transitory, you know, to be transitory or not to be transitory? That is the question. That's what everybody's thinking about. And how do we know? I mean, obviously, as you mentioned, we're looking at the next number. Remember, one number in isolation for people who are relatively new to this, while it can be a really ugly number or a great number, depending, it really is the key is looking at what the moving averages look like, how the trajectory begins to move over time. How do you begin to think about that, Ed? You've been looking at these kinds of numbers for decades. What's your theory about what's happening and how will you know whether it's coming true? Yeah, um, I think that it, we're talking about the Fed as a uh, global central bank, i.e. they are doing things for the entire economy rather than just for the United States, meaning that their impact is global. Uh, let me give you an example. Weston Nakamura, uh, who's one of our colleagues, he noticed that the Taiwan uh, uh, index was down like 9% one day loss uh, on the day as a result of these jitters that we're talking about. So, you know, these are the kinds of things that have a global impact. The question then is, is if the Fed has a dual mandate, what do they do about that dual mandate? What are the targets that they're looking for? They've told us that inflation is transitory, therefore you can completely dismiss it over the short term. Though over the long term, we're looking for a catch up to 2%. Before, people thought maybe 2% was a ceiling. We're telling you it's not, that it's a central tendency. And so if if we had like 1.2%, right. then we're fine getting 2.8% for an equivalent amount of time. When it comes to the employment side, however, we want to get back to where we were before. We we're at 3.5% unemployment. We have seven or eight million jobs left to go, plus any catch up that we might have needed to do because the size of the economy is growing. So the Fed is saying those are our bogeys. And uh, they've implicitly said that the second bogey is the more important bogey. So then the question is, is, you know, how 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 set in stone is that? Because that's not really how the Fed's been talking in the past. Um, if you think back to 2018, the Fed was raising interest rates. Uh, uh, Powell said that we're a long way from neutral in terms of the neutral interest rate. Uh, that's a whole nother uh, 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 can of worms that I don't want to open. But the long and short is, is, is that he raised interest rates more aggressively than people anticipated. And then the bond vigilantes were working in reverse back then. And so the question in terms of what I believe is, 
the nexus of employment and of uh, of interest. Uh, sorry, employment and inflation. How they uh, come out in terms of what the Fed's reaction function is. Right now, the last uh, two reads that we have are like 200 and some thousand jobs on employment instead of a million. And we have 4.2% year-on-year inflation instead of 3.6%. Most people will call that stagflation, you know, meaning uh, bad on the employment side, bad on the inflation side. That's a recipe for high interest rates in the previous Fed regime. I don't think the Fed is playing games. I think that they actually do believe what they say. And so I do think at the margin, they will um, continue on the same path. But there's only so much that they're willing to put up with um, on the inflation front. So if we see bad numbers like this uh, in June and in July, then the free pass that we've been giving the Fed uh, it won't come to fruition. We're going to see a steepening of the yield curve, and that's going to be very negative for the growthiest of, of stocks. Yeah. So so much there. So interesting. So many good points you've made. Uh, you know, the thing that I homed in on uh, was this almost wrestling match that the Fed is having with itself uh, between the two different components of the dual mandate, maximum employment and stable prices. You know, you were saying, just to give a little bit of context and color, because I know this is something you've been thinking about, uh, but to bring it back to sort of first principles here, if you go up to the St. Louis Fed Fred database and you look at all employees, uh, total non-farm payrolls, this is the PayMs series. This is a series that goes back uh, to like 1939. And it's basically a straight line that goes like this at like a 45 degree angle, straight up. And why? Well, because that represents, uh, it represents the growth of population, the growth of the economy, women coming into the workforce, all series of other factors uh, that have been in play uh, for the last, uh, call it 80 years or so. And when you look at that number, what happens is it drops off dramatically, dramatically, a steep 90 degree angle plummet uh, when we get to the COVID crisis. Now, there's a very sharp V-shaped recovery. So it drops down, it shoots back up, and then it kind of levels off. And what you look at is if you project that line, where it would have been, uh, it is significantly below that. Not only are we below the natural trend, but we're actually significantly, substantially below where we were when this crisis began in, in terms of the number of total people employed in the United States. Now, you think about this against the backdrop of what you're talking about, you've got a collision here. This is the, this is the unstoppable force meeting the immovable object two elements of the dual mandate very much in conflict. Yeah, and you know, that picture that you're painting, yeah, oh, the thing that I have in my mind is, is I have a picture of, of, uh, of this slope line like this, you know, dropping and then us uh, retaining a new, the same slope again. I mean, what people are looking for, they're not looking for this, they're looking for that. They're looking for, you know, us to meet that, that previous line and then get back onto that previous path. But to me, it seems like that's not happening. Uh, we we did have the reverse radical recovery, which is where uh, you know we go down and then we come up, and and then the question is is this radical line here how uh, how elevated is that 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 line slope? If we get a slope of a line that's similar to what we had before, then we're never going to get back to square one. We're never going to get back to the 
to the line that we that we missed. That's not good. And that means that there's going to be an output gap. And if the Fed is 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 correct, saying that um, we're not going to raise interest rates until we get back, then they're going to be on at zero forever. Um, and the bond vigilantes are saying, we don't believe you, especially given the am amount of inflation that we're already seeing in the system and that we believe is going to be built up over time. So this is a a, a massive, massive uh, fight uh, from a policy perspective. I think that, uh, to me, it's the most important thing, rates and the Fed's reaction function at this point. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Yeah. Yeah, extremely well said. I'm also looking at something that I'm sure you looked at earlier today uh, when the report came out from BLS, the Bureau of Labor Statistics at the Department of Labor. This is Table A. It's the percent change uh, in CPI, and it's the breakdown. What we've been talking about here has been the you know, the the big headline number. But there's obviously underneath that all of the numbers that it's composed of. And some of these are pretty striking in themselves. Ed, and I was wondering if you give some commentary. And I want to throw a few of them out to you. Uh, so one of the interesting things is all items on an unadjusted 12-month basis uh, up 4.2%. That's the number that we've been talking about. That's certainly the number that's been bandied around on all the cable news networks. But here's what you may not hear there. Uh, which is uh, obviously a huge percentage of this uh, is coming from energy-based commodities, which are up 47.9%. Now, the question about whether these are transitory factors uh, or not is a really relevant one here. Um, if you look at this, all items less food and energy, which is often thought of as a more reflective uh, core number, it's 4.4%. Uh, I mean, this is, this is really shocking. Here's something that's interesting. Used cars and trucks uh, in April of 2021, up 10%. This is people wanting to get out of their house, wanting to get back on the road. Uh, used cars and trucks, unadjusted 12-month, 21%. Yeah. I mean, the, the Fed, they can look through that data for a decent amount of time. Yes, 100%. But there's only they only get a free pass for so long. And overshoots of the magnitude that we saw this past month, uh, they're you know they're so large that it, you know the Fed won't be able to overlook it. Let me tell you uh, a stat that I was looking at based on what you were saying: a core CPI, which is a stat that uh, they measure as well. Which is you know you take away all the stuff that we, that doesn't really drive inflation over the longer term. Core CPI was up three percent. Yeah. And the interesting bit is if you go back and you look at core CPI and you look for the last time that, you know, it was on that line, it was 1995. So 26 years ago is the last time that we had 3.0% year over year increases in core CPI. That's a long time. Uh, you know, that's when inflation was coming down from an incredibly high number. I, I think that, uh, again, it does beg the question, is the, is the Fed really going to stick to its guns? Um, and, and let me just add, when I say the Fed, let's put an S in parentheses, the Feds, because we also have massive amounts of fiscal stimulus happening at the same time. 
So it's not just the Fed, it's also the fiscal stimulus, and all of this is building up this inflationary pressure uh, that people are concerned about. Yeah. Let me just restate, just in case you did this, and I'm literally doing this off the report here, so it's hard to see. Uh, all items less food and energy, 3%. Commodities less food and energy, 4.4%. This is unadjusted, 12 months, ended April 2021. Yes. So... Uh, here, let's let's make the pivot then, Ash, to the the fiscal side, because the the real question for me basically is this: um, Are we in a, in a new era? Are we in in a, a paradigm shift from a policy perspective? Because Jay Powell's making it seem like yes, we are. That now we have employment dominance, if you will, in terms of their dual mandate, and then uh, Joe Biden's making it seem like you have fiscal dominance in terms of monetary policy versus fiscal policy. That's not what we had over the last, say, 30 or 40 years. Is this, is this actually going to last, especially if we start to see the whites of inflation's eyes? Uh, I, that's that's the, the $64,000 question. And if you look at the yield curve, uh, the steepness of the yield curve is nothing close to what it was in the last two cycles. We still have a decent amount of steepening to go both compared to the cycle that ended in 2000 and or that began in 2001 and the cycle that began in 2009. So we have a long way to go before the bond vigilantes are really, you know, you could say that they're out of the running. I, I think that uh, the momentum is still toward higher rates uh, at the long end of the curve. Yeah. Talk to the, your reasoning behind that. Why do you see that momentum looking that way at the longer end of the curve? Yeah, when I look at uh, you know the steepness of the curve in both 2001 and 2008, I think that uh, it says that the bond vigilantes haven't given up. Uh, I also think that the Fed's policy functions, uh, the Fed's reaction function is relatively novel in terms of its about face. So the, the bond market wants to test the Fed, whether or not they believe what they believe. And then lastly, we have evidence from how it worked in Japan. You think about the Widowmaker trade in, in Japan. The yeah. Widowmaker trade uh, worked well for the Bank of Japan, but it had to be tested over and over and over again. Uh, the bond vigilantes in Japan never gave up. Uh, many people made widows going after that trade but they always had a run at the Japanese authorities. And the question when you're talking about the, the world's reserve currency is, what kind of impact does that have reflexively on, uh, uh, on markets, especially markets that are priced for perfection uh, on the equity side, especially markets that are top heavy in terms of their tech um, uh, balance? It could be the sort of thing that is the straw that breaks the camel's back and it has sort of a reflexive uh, impact on a tightening of financial conditions. Yeah. You know, Stan Druckenmiller was out yesterday talking about this as well. Uh, he obviously um, himself a, a bond vigilante, at least in the past, uh, and talking about whether or not he may be one in the future. That was the sort of subtext of the conversation. Uh, and he made precisely the point that you made, which was, look, this tear that equity markets have been on, uh, you know, since the uh, accommodation was increased by the Fed, uh, you know, in uh, in the uh, depths of the crisis is incredibly top heavy for these big tech, uh, big cap tech names. And why is that, 
uh, he wonders aloud. And the answer is because that's fundamentally what's catching the bid, because this is where the, the economy goes when you can't physically go out in the world. You're in front of uh, your terminal. You're in front of your screen. You're using all of these uh, virtualized services. Uh, you're uh, you're upping your uh, entertainment consumption online. You're going to work via Zoom meetings. Uh, and what happens when that rolls off? Yeah, you know, and what's interesting for me is is when I look at uh, the losers of the day, the market movers. It is a combination of those companies and the reopening companies. So we have two different uh, things that are going on. It's a bifurcated sell-off. You know, I'm looking at market movers. Uh, you look and you see TripAdvisor was one of the movers that was down. Gap was another of the big losers. Lennar was another of the big movers down. Uh, um, applied Materials. So these are all companies that are benefiting uh, from uh, reopening or from, uh, you know, the, the, the high tech part. And then you have the Teslas of the world, the Facebook, the Amazons. So what basically you're seeing is, is at the margin, people saying they don't really know how well stuck on this particular um, recovery is going to be given sort of the, the, the market tightening dynamics that are happening as a result of potentially you know, a stagflationary environment. I don't believe in the stagflation, uh, but I think that um, this is a narrative that could get legs, and that's just enough to, to create a tightening of, of conditions. Well, Ed, you just anticipated my first question, actually, uh, which is coming to us from uh, Don Lassus. And the question is, can you explain how this inflation could be sticky? And does that mean, precisely as you were saying, uh, an increased risk of stagflation for Q4 21. Yeah, I mean, that's where the rubber hits the road. How do you explain how, uh, you know, trucks and cars that you said were going up at double digit rates now continue to go up at double digit rates? At some point, uh, people are not going to be able to pay for that. At some point, you're not going to be able to uh, pass through those costs. To me, the way that it, that it continues to go up is, is that it somehow gets embedded via wages uh, going up and continuing to go up and then prices going up and things of that nature. But right. I, don't, I don't see the mechanism for that yet. So I'm, I'm sort of uh, a, I look at this as a step level change in the inflation. Uh, like the Fed has said, it's somewhat transitory, but the, le the step level change is high enough that especially in a world in which we're still short of jobs, in which people are probably making 3% increase in their wages, it, it's onerous. You know, if, if you have, if you are making 3% more on average and inflation's going up 4.2%, you just lost 1.2%. You, yes. you are poorer now than you were a year ago. Yeah. That's not an economy that's doing well. It's not stagflation, but it, it's not a good thing. Right, yeah, very well said. Uh, talking of which, these questions, which seem to often anticipate uh, the direction that we're headed. Uh, here's one that comes from Steve, and I think this is a really interesting one, uh, which is, is it inflation or is it really the devaluing of the dollar? Yeah, interesting. Uh, you know, I don't, I, don't have a I don't have an answer for that. What, Ash, are you looking at uh, the DXY? Because DXY is at 90.7. It, it doesn't seem like, you know, it definitely, certainly the, uh, the, the uh, 
euro and uh, the British pound have increased relative to the uh, to the dollar. But to me, this is more fundamental, uh, especially when you look at Taiwan uh, selling off. I don't really think of it as a dollar move. I think of it more as uh, a, a move that is interest rate related. Yeah, I think that's spot on. And I think that to your broader point that these uh, obviously looking at the dollar, we hear this uh, all the time uh, from uh, from folks who uh, who believe uh, that uh, who believed for a very long period of time that we're going to see hyper hyperinflation uh, that never materialized. I'm talking about in the wake of uh, 2008 going back that far. Uh, and the point is uh, that the dollar uh, and what's happening in the United States relative to the Fed uh, is always in the context of a broader global market for currencies. And when you have uh, when you have uh, the ECB, the BOJ, uh, you know, BOE all easing uh, as well, it becomes uh, the phenomenon of the, the cleanest shirt in the pile of dirty laundry. Uh, and maybe that shirt has gotten um, a little bit of a tea stain on the collar. Uh, but still, to your point, I think relative to the broader context. Yeah, you know, interesting, uh, though, in terms of the price action across major indices today and also the backdrop, now people are starting to talk about Europe reopening. Uh, and maybe uh, some of the magic from the U.S. has, uh, especially when you have this print for the inflation numbers, is wearing off. And now we're seeing other markets catch up to a little uh, to a certain degree. So, for instance, uh, rather than thinking of it from a currency perspective, think of it from a relative uh, market perspective. All of the, the U.S. indices were down. Uh, the Bavespa was down. I'm looking at that, but I look at some of these other indices. You know, the DAX was up marginally. The FTSE was up almost one percent. The CAC 40 it was up uh, uh, marginally today. The Euro stocks was sideways, up you know marginally. So even though those markets all closed after this print, uh, Europe did not sell off as much as the United States. Number one, they're not as tech heavy. Uh, so right. that's that's number one. So the interest rate uh, problem doesn't uh, affect them quite as much. And then number two, uh, they're reopening now. Uh, and so they're they're at the point that the United States was, say, two months ago. And so I think that there's more bullishness about the pent up demand story than there is in the U.S., where. There are some jitters about the level of demand that we're going to actually see in the U.S., in Q3 and Q4. Yeah. Speaking of jitters, we apologize uh, for any um, anomalies you may be seeing in your video. I think it might be uh, our connection fluttering a little bit here. Uh, but Ed, I really want to ask you about something. You talk about the magic that's happening in the United States, something we haven't talked about for a while that I would really love to get your insight in. If you go back, if you rewind the clock to about a year from now or a little bit more, when we were having this conversation, talking about the pain that small businesses were feeling, talking about the pain uh, that restaurant owners, bar owners, uh, even people who own shops on main streets were feeling when the economy went into massive, massive lockdown. What's the flip side of that, Ed? Uh, where do you see that type of activity going? And are there significant improvements now in the lives of those folks uh, who basically had to use uh, fiscal stimulus to get by? Yeah, uh, it's a really good question because at this point, we're we're reopening, uh, and we're expecting a bounce. But then I think uh, there's going to be a longer term, and so 
when we talk about fiscal stimulus and we talk about emergency measures for small and medium-sized businesses, those measures aren't going to be available to those companies over the longer term. So right. then the question goes to consumer behavior after the pent-up demand period ends. And what are the resources available, both in terms of emergency resources and also in terms of the go-forward top-line revenue growth of these small, medium-sized businesses? I would say that at the margin, uh, you're going to see problems there. That uh, likely what you'll see is that things aren't going to come back 100% to where they were before. Everyone I talk to at a minimum says, I'm going to do X, I'm going to do Y, I'm going to do Z, but you know, this other thing I'm not going to do. I'll right. give you an example. Uh, someone was talking to me about inside or outside. Uh, they were talking to me about moving or not moving, and they were talking to me about people I know and people I don't know. So that builds up a, 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 a decision tree of three or four different things that they were willing to do. This is a friend of mine was talking to me about movie theaters. So being outside and doing something that while I'm moving, let's say like bicycling, uh, with people who I know, yes, I'm, I'm all in that now that I'm vaccinated. He then said, you know, having people over to my house in a garden party, yes, even though we're not moving around, we're all vaccinated, I'm all in that. I'm a little bit less excited about bringing them over, uh, you know, inside when we're not moving around, you know, at the dinner table, but it's friends of mine, okay? Then when you move from friends inside in a stationary environment and you move to people who I've never met before and I don't know, inside and in a stationary environment, then that's when he started to have trouble. He said, I'm yeah. dying to go see a movie, but... I don't know if I'm going to do that. The muscle memory of the pandemic is so large that he's still hesitant to do that. I think that, you know, that there are enough people like that and there are enough uh, situations like that, that you're going to have a big problem, both in these pandemic affected sectors and also for small, medium sized businesses, uh, which are the ones who are less able to withstand the cash flow problem. Yeah, this is what I've missed uh, talking about you, uh, these kinds of topics so much. I think these are such great points. Uh, you know, where that line gets drawn, an incredibly important point. You talk about the muscle memory uh, of being out and about. I find that's been true with myself. I've gone and dined indoors a few times uh, at restaurants. And one of the things that's really hard for me is having a conversation with someone who's sitting across the table from me when there are other people in the room. It's something I haven't done. There's all this weird echoey noise, and it seems strange. We're just totally out of practice at it. Uh, this idea that just the muscle memory, it just feels weird. It just feels a little bit wrong. And how people draw that line, where they cross it and where they don't. The other thing that I think you said that was incredibly important is this idea of at the margin. As we all know, economic activity happens at the margin, where the change is. And for small businesses, it's really hard to see. Uh, for example, obviously they're improving dramatically, but it's really hard to understand uh, why, for example, uh, you know, maybe in May, Maybe in June, there's a rebound effect. But when you get to uh, October of, uh, of 2021, it's really hard to see why activity would be better than it was in October of 2019, for example. And that's really such an important point, the change at the margin. This is going to be something uh, that we're going to need to follow very, very closely. There's going to be a lot of data. The data is going to bounce around really dramatically. It's going to be hard to interpret, hard to understand, and very hard to find a clear narrative. 
You know, let me ask you this question, okay? Uh, the, especially given what's going on in India right now, there is the possibility that come, let's say, October, as you were saying, that somewhere in the world there are a significant number of coronavirus cases. They may not be, you know, dominating the uh, discussion the way that they are in India right now, but they'll still be there. So, in, in that environment. Uh, it is now uh, fall. It, it's somewhat chilly. You can go indoors and you have the opportunity to go back to a restaurant you've never been to. Uh, the question is, how many people are going to think twice about doing that? Uh, are they, you know, using your, your, your phrase again at the margin? Yeah. Are, is it going to be 100 percent? Is it going to be 105 percent? I think when you say that it's not going to be 105%, it's hard to see how October 2021 is 105% of October 2019. Right. I think it's much more likely that it's 100% or less. So 95%. And then for that business, how much of a hit do you take at, at 5%? Um, so that's that's my question to you. You know, at the margin, are you going to do those activities? You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, it's exactly the right question. And unfortunately, I don't have the answer. You know, my feeling on this, I had this like kind of step change. I got a call from a friend of mine and she and her husband were having a party. This is about 10 days ago. Uh, and she called me up and she said, listen, you should come. And I said, yeah, we'll see if I can. And I thought, no, I'm not going to this party. And after I hung up the phone, it struck me. And this is a personal decision and everyone has to reach it on their own. But what struck me was, look, it's been 19 days since I've been vaccinated. This is as immune to COVID as I'm ever going to get. This is as good as it gets right now. If I don't go to this party tonight, I might as well just lock myself in my apartment until I'm 58, right? I'm never going anywhere. So for me, I made that decision and I was extremely strict, as you guys know, in lockdown, I, I didn't really leave my apartment, but I was like, this is it, I'm done. Now, that's a decision that everyone is going to have to reach on their own and it's going to have to do with a number of different factors, probably your overall health, how old you are. If I were 25 years old, man, I'd be going nuts right now if I were vaccinated. If I were 75, probably be a different story. Uh, so all of these questions about the chronic health conditions and every person making that uh, decision for themselves, and also then these the weird feedback effects, right? Because there's social proof effect here. If my neighbor, if my colleagues are all going out, then I feel like, well, maybe I should be going out too, or vice versa. So it's a very complex kind of matrix of decision making, uh, and um, and and it's it's kind of impossible to predict beforehand. So it's really a, this question of where that threshold is where those tipping points are uh, and what happens at the margin, boy, great questions don't have the answer to it. But I will throw out one other thing, and, I, and I'm not trying to be pessimistic here, but if we're being honest, uh, you know, the question about mutations uh, and vaccination, to me, that's the potential wild card that's out there that's lurking that could be a significant problem. Now, obviously, I'm not saying that that will happen. Uh, so far, the data has actually been incredibly favorable for the mutations for the main uh, vaccines, the three that we're getting here in the United States. Uh, but it is an open question, and we certainly hope and pray uh, that that is not something that we have to deal with.
Yes. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I hesitate to bring it in when I talk about India. You know, immediately, that's what I'm thinking about. It doesn't necessarily have to be a massive outbreak in October 2021, but who knows what's going to happen between then and now. And and just going back to your decision making, I was just thinking about, you know, I have the grill. I, I, I've got the outdoor uh, flame. Uh, you know, I have the, the bonfire pit at my house. I have the chairs, the Adirondack chairs and so forth. And 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 the the lawn chairs. October two thousand twenty one. I can definitely do that, uh, much more so than I did in October two thousand nineteen. There's no reason for me to try to walk uh, a mile or uh, you know uh, drive three miles to the local restaurant when I've paid you know thousands of dollars. I'm. It's not me that's paid the thousands of dollars, but I'm giving you an example of right. people who paid thousands of dollars to upgrade their facilities that those are permanent moves i'm sorry ash but you know some people are permanently changing their lifestyles and you know 30 percent of the time that they would have gone somewhere else they're going to do it at home yes you of course are a happily married man living in the suburbs i can assure you that jack and max are not staying in <laughs> exactly yeah 100 percent yeah, and those are these are very complex issues, and and we're going to have to watch really. And as as we said, you know, remaining sort of focused on what the data uh, shows, you know, these are really the questions. By the way, uh, to exactly the point that you made for, uh, and to get back to some of the questions, we have an interesting one that's coming to us uh, from Manas Argarwal, uh, and uh, the question is: uh, They're a viewer from India, and they're curious uh, to know about what your view is uh, on India and emerging markets more generally. Yeah, uh, I think interestingly, when I think about India and emerging markets, I immediately go back to the conversation I was having with Raoul about the exponential age. Uh, you know, looking beyond you know what's going on right now, uh, which is horrible. I think that there's lots of uh, opportunity, especially in a country like India, where you have a billion people, over a billion people, and you do have infrastructure problems. I think the potential in an exponential age type of situation to leapfrog technologically such that the infrastructure becomes overcome uh, and therefore you benefit from the cost savings of the new technology is great. And so if you think about Facebook, Amazon, you think about uh, Google, are there not Googles of, the, of India coming forward? What about Tencent, Alibaba, Ant uh, Group? That We have those in China. You know that you're gonna get those in a country like India. So to me, I look uh, in a bullish way on that opportunity. Other emerging markets, uh, I think uh, less so than what I just said about India, but I certainly think the leapfrogging aspect is definitely there in terms of 5G uh, and eventually 6G. So. I'm, I think longer term, I'm very optimistic. Yeah. And of course, the human toll of what we're seeing in India is just a horrific thing. And our, obviously, our thoughts and our prayers are, are with people. There's a story that came out yesterday that I thought was incredibly effective and uh, just affecting and just really gut wrenching about, uh, about, about bodies washing up uh, along the Ganges, people who'd presumably died of COVID. I mean, this is a, an incredibly, incredibly difficult, difficult time. Yeah, and the most difficult, I think, is the fact that in the United States in particular, where vaccination is well advanced, 
we're in a completely different mode. We have to remember that the situation that we were in just months ago, this is a situation that other countries, India in particular, Brazil, you know, that they are going through, have just recently gone through. Uh, So yes, uh, it's hard to remember back when you're just thinking about going to the next restaurant and reopening, but it is a difficult period globally for the, for the pandemic. Yeah. Talking of globally, here's one that comes to us, a question from Martin. Uh, which markets are set to benefit the most, Ed, uh, from the CPI read? Uh, and where does the CPI read fit into the Fed's average inflation targeting? Yes, that's uh, two interesting questions. I don't know which markets fit into uh, benefiting the most from the CPI itself, but I've already, I've been saying for some time now that I'm I, I'm fading the uh, reflation trade, the uh, the reopening trade, and I'm thinking much more about uh, that trade in Europe, a catch up in Europe in particular. That when you look at market multiples, uh, there's a differential that hasn't been made up. When you look at you know a, a trough to to peak type of move from March 2020, the United States looks much better than Europe. Uh, so I think that there's some catch up you can get out of that. Uh, what I'd be interested in is what Darius Dale has to say about uh, this situation because he's just started up with uh, his own investment company. I've talked to him briefly here and there, traded some uh, things with him on. Um, on Twitter, but when I look back to one of his his last appearance on Real Vision, he was saying right now that's when he was thinking that we're going to pivot from a, a you know one regime to a different regime. So right now we're in the midst of a pivot uh, within the United States and globally from an investment perspective. I think that Europe benefits. I'd like to see what people like Darius Dale would say. So that's the one thing that that I'm thinking about. And there was another question about average inflation targeting. My view is is, is that the debate that we had years ago about the 2% target being a ceiling is no longer in play. That 2% is no longer a ceiling, it's a target. And I'll say what this is all about. Remember when the Fed was raising interest rates in 2018? They said, you know, uh, and, and I mentioned, you know, Jay Powell saying that we're a long way from neutral. We weren't at 2%. So why was the Fed raising interest rates when uh, the inflation target is 2%? That doesn't sound like 2% is symmetric. It should be that the Fed's doing nothing or only, you know, marginally uh, reducing accommodation below 2%. And then it's above 2% that they really start to get going. I think that that is much more likely now. Than it was before. So I do believe the Fed has shifted its reaction function. How much we'll find out. Yeah. Darius Dell now a 42 macro, his new shop founder and CEO. Uh, final question. I know we're running out of time, but I want to ask this just because I really want to hear your answer to it. Uh, this comes to us from Mark. Uh, and the question is, do you think we are in the early innings of a commodity super cycle. And I would add to that a question of my own for people uh, who aren't following this as closely as you are, Ed. Please explain what a commodity super cycle is and what the significance is. Yeah, a commodity super cycle is a cycle where 
commodity prices uh, go higher over a longer period of time. Uh, and I would say that the likelihood of that is greater when there's underinvestment in uh, those uh, commodities in terms of uh, bringing those commodities to market. I'm not a, enough of a expert on agricultural commodities to tell you whether or not uh, there's an excess or a lack thereof, but everything I've heard doesn't suggest that there is. On the other hand, uh, when you look at markets that are like copper, uh, like lithium, like oil, when you look at the demand supply balance uh, in terms of what's coming forward, in terms of EVs, in terms of green energy, um, really those are markets where I think there is there are some legs. Even though we're moving to green energy, I still think that there's some legs in the fossil fuels market because uh, you know of underinvestment. But I'm I'm a little bit skeptical of the of the super cycle. I think that. Uh, we'll just have to wait and see. I don't know enough. And uh, and so therefore, I'm skeptical that we're in a, in a new era for yeah. commodities. But definitely something that we'll be taking a look at here on The Daily Briefing and also on the main platform at Real Vision uh, when we'll be talking to people uh, about that, I'm sure, uh, in the coming months. And I know they said that was the last question, but as we wind down here, I just saw one from James Mulholland. And the question is, did we all just get an invitation to Ed's fire pit? <laughs> that would be good. Yeah. Um, you, you have to know where I, where I live first. Maybe when you see the fire going, I live relatively close to a, a major road. So you, you'll see that. And, you know, since you opened that up, that's good. Uh, you know, I know that you went out in New York with Jack and you invited everyone along to people. Did you guys end up doing that? And did everyone go? Nobody showed up. Ed. Nobody showed up. What is going on? That is that is bad. I, maybe they let, didn't let, think we were serious. We were really there. We were literally there eating burgers, drinking beer for like two hours. Yes. And it, the cheese was dripping. Uh, that, that's your, your new moniker. Internally, we always talk about the dripping cheese. You know, that's that's how it was. Juicy burgers and dripping cheese. A Nick Correa favorite. <laughs> so um, but before we go, I know you're going to sign off. Let me just say that I spoke to Azim Azar who has a book called The Exponential Age uh, that's coming out in September. That video is going to go live tomorrow. Unbelievable interview. Uh, uh, let me just, you know, like pure advertising for, for what uh, what's coming. I loved what he had to say. I want everyone to see it. Check it out. Uh, very deep thinker. I think he meshes a lot with Rao, comes at it from a different perspective. But I, I'd be interested to see what you guys think uh, when you take it. Check it out. Yeah, we should also add, welcome to the exponential age right now on Real Vision. Uh, Rao sat down with uh, Bill Tai, uh, a terrific interview. It was a great interview. He was terrific uh, with uh, with Rao, I guess, uh, last year and a great one uh, this year. And I recently sat down uh, with uh, James uh, with John Nosta uh, to uh, talk about what was happening in healthcare, in med tech, and in innovation, which I thought was a really interesting conversation. So we're continuing those interesting conversations on the platform at Real Vision. Uh, and we'd love it if you joined us there. And please, again, just to uh, kind of build on what you said earlier, uh, Ed, jump in in the comments uh, on the Real Vision page. Tell us what you think. Tell us more about what you'd like to see here on the Real Vision Daily Briefing.
Yeah, uh, well said, because I think there is a difference between what's going on in the interview series now and what's going on in the Real Vision Daily Briefing. And for me, it brings home the concept. These are two separate vehicles. I'd love to hear what people want to see on the one versus the other, how integral they think it is to their experience as subscribers to Real Vision. And, uh, you know, maybe one day some of you guys will be at my bonfire uh, <laughs> in my back house. We'll, we'll see. Hey, let me ask you this before we go. For people who may not be Real Vision subscribers, how would you describe the difference? You know, for me, Real Vision Daily Briefing uh, is something that we're looking at the day-to-day -day events. Uh, we're looking at what happened in the news cycle. We're looking at markets. We're looking at current data releases. Uh, but by definition, because we only have a relatively short period of time and we like to touch on a lot of topics, uh, what's coming on with Newsflow, we're not able to get quite as deep on the platform uh, as I think about it, we're doing these very deep dive conversations with true experts in their field, lots of folks from the buy side, uh, lots of folks who run money, who are talking about something in a great deal of depth, uh, typically an hour or longer interview. So I think a very different experience, but I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are. Yeah, it's a good question because uh, I think that the, the, what I would focus in on is this inflation uh, number that we're talking about. Because to me, this is a perfect example of the difference between the two. Yeah. What happened today was dominated in the markets by uh, the inflation number and the bond market's reaction to that and the equity market's reaction to that. If you were in an interview uh, on, on the RV platform, you would never talk about any of that. That would only be... A, a generic context for the regime that we're in. If I were to say that we're in a regime that is very much where interest rates are the toggle, and this regime has been going since April, and I expect it to continue through at least the end of the summer, and that's something that I, I, I think uh, makes sense, that's, uh, you know, I wouldn't necessarily point to a specific uh, CPI number. Whereas in the daily briefing, we do. So the daily briefing is very much more focused on the data and about contextualizing that data from a macro perspective. I don't know if that makes sense, uh, if that's how you look at it, Ash. Yeah, that's that's. I think that's very well said, Ed. And I just see uh, Prius Omega, I feel like, summed it up better than I did. He just said, yeah, the daily briefing just ties what happens in the day to the overarching themes, meaning the overarching themes on Real Vision, I think that's exactly it. So I think we've been outdone by the uh, subscribers on their on their on their description. But I would also add, you know, one of the other things that we, if you've never seen the shows that we do on Real Vision Daily Briefing, uh, they're very deep dives. Often we'll go through like a dozen charts uh, with a guest. We'll let them walk through their thesis. Uh, very frequently, these are people uh, who have thought a great deal uh, in a very specific way about a very narrow topic, and they'll come on and they'll almost give a presentation. Uh, about how they think about it with you or with me. And then we'll do a Q&A and we'll talk about it with them. Uh, so it's just a different kind of thing. Um, and I think they're they're both incredibly valuable. They're just very different in the way that we approach them. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly how I look at it. I'd, I'd be just interested to know what our subscribers think about it. So uh, definitely, please give us your view in the comments because uh, I think that's invaluable information to have. Yeah, perfectly said. Ed, this is so much fun to get to do again with you. Yes, make it every week, Ash. Let's do it. Let's do it. I'm in.
You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.